Thank you so much, Pastor Justin, praise team. Wonderful job. I'm actually not going uh, to open with reading this morning um, because we're in Leviticus chapter 25. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22. And what I'm going to do instead is kind of just uh, read it uh, as, as we go along. Uh, our habit normally, if you're a visitor with us, is to read God's word together at the beginning. But I want to kind of um, instead just open with a word of prayer and then we'll dive right in. But before we do, we are acknowledging that no matter what, we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. So let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word. Gracious Father, it is good to be here with your people. It's good to be here in your presence. And it's fitting now for us to prepare to receive from you your word. Lord, as many of us come here this morning weary, some of us, I'm sure, are physically exhausted, some of us battling illness. Lord, some are just weary from the day-to-day tasks that are so demanding. Lord, many of us, we recognize, come here distracted. And we desperately need for you now to quiet our minds and focus our hearts. Would you please, Lord, speak to your people this morning, myself included. Would you allow us to hear what it is we need to hear from your word? Father, we are needy. We need you. Would you please meet us now as we study together your infallible word? And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Most of us know what the Liberty Bell is, right? It's in Philadelphia. It's, it's, it's definitely second, but it's arguably the second most important artifact or, or, or thing in Philadelphia. Second only, of course, to the Rocky statue, right? That's clearly the most significant, the reason why people go to Philadelphia. Actually, fun story, our, one of Amy and I's first trips together was to Philadelphia, and uh, she was really excited to see Independence Hall and Liberty Bell. I just wanted to get a picture of the Rocky statue. Um, I was hoping that they had an elevator, so I didn't really have to climb the steps, but, uh, uh, and they had a concert going on, like a huge concert that, that Beyonce was there, and I was like, ugh, forget Beyonce. Give me the, so I couldn't even take a picture of the, the Rocky statue. Um, but regardless, the Liberty Bell is in Philadelphia, and it's, it's really a great iconic symbol of American independence. So is the Rocky statue, by the way. Uh, but it, it, actually, it actually wasn't wrong on July 4th, 1776, as many thought it was. Uh, it, but it's still a symbol of freedom in our country. The Liberty Bell, if, if you don't know, it's inscribed with these words. Some of you may know this, but these words are inscribed in the Liberty Bell. It is, they are... Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. These words, if you guess it, actually come from our text today in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. So it's fitting to start with a brief introduction about the Liberty Bell because this passage as a whole really is about liberty. It's about freedom. Maybe not necessarily in the sense of gaining freedom from civil government, but certainly freedom from debt and servitude. Freedom to return to one's inheritance, to return to one's own land and one's own clan. So that's really the big idea of today's passage. Today's passage is all about liberty and return. Liberty and return is the big idea. I'll explain what I mean by that in a bit, but before I do, we've got some work to do on the introduction side 
I want to say a couple words about where we are in Leviticus. We're almost done, uh, but we actually start this morning the epilogue. We're actually at the very end, chapters 25 through 27, they're one literary unit. And there's a couple ways that we see that. In fact, just some pointers as you look in Leviticus 25, you look at verse 1 and look what it says. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, and then you skip all the way down to the back, uh, Leviticus chapter 27, and you look at the very end in verse 34, and it closes with these words. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. So we really haven't heard anything about Mount Sinai yet in Leviticus, uh, and that refers to the fact that this is a concluding section. It's one literary unit. It's also formed as a huge chiasm. Uh, For those of us who aren't familiar with that term, uh, it's basically, again, a structure like ABA or ABCBA. It's a literary device where the first and last portion are kind of inverted, and the middle portion usually has some significant meaning. Uh, This is a chiasm with chapter 25 being about the, the laws regarding redemption. And then in the middle section in chapter 26, you have these covenant stipulations, blessings for walking according to the Lord and curses for disobeying the Lord. And then you have the final chapter, you have more laws of redemption. And so next time, Lord willing, we'll take the redemption portion. But this week, what we're focusing on is what's called the Jubilee. We'll finish somewhere uh, in there, but that's where we're headed this morning. I want to mention a couple other brief preliminary remarks uh, in order for us to really understand what's here in our passage, I want to I use the image of a table. And, and what I want to do is I want to um, introduce to you the four legs of the table. And, and you'll need to hang on to this as we study throughout the rest of this month, this kind of epilogue. Uh, you'll need to know this. Not all of these legs will probably be uh, pertinent to us this morning, but we need to have them as we consider this literary unit as a whole. Okay, The first leg is an understanding of Israel's kinship system. That's the first leg of the table. We have to have some understanding of Israel's kinship system if we're going to understand specifically redemption as we look at that next time. But I'm going to introduce it here. The the structure of Israel was really a three-tier pattern of kinship made up of the tribe, the clan, and the family household. The tribe, the clan, and the family household. That is the structure of Israel. A tribe was one of the descendants of Jacob or Israel, the the 12 sons. Uh, The tribes are then broken into clans and the clans broken into family household. The family household in Israel was not just the nuclear family. It was usually several nuclear families with one male head and they were the primary place of authority. That family unit sometimes consisted of three to four generations. It was the primary place of authority, support, and protection. The family was primarily responsible for the well-being of everyone within the household. Not some governmental agency, but the family. That's the first leg, Israel's kinship system. The second leg would be Israel's system of land ownership. Israel's system of land ownership. This is also pivotal for us to understand what's happening in the text before us. See, when Israel arrived in the promised land, we know this, the land was allotted according to the tribes. Those tribes allotted the land, therefore, according to the 
clans. And the clans according to the family households. That's actually played out perfectly for us in the book of Numbers, chapter 26, as well as really a huge section in the book of Joshua from chapters 13 through 21. The only thing I want to say about this point specifically is we see two things going on very clearly. In Israel's land ownership, the system of land ownership, we see that there is equitable distribution going on. Equitable distribution going on. It's mentioned specifically that they are allotted land according to their size. But we also see not only is there an equitable distribution, but there is an inalienable right. It's an inalienable right. This land that was given to the, the families in Israel, it was not something that could be taken away. It belongs to the family. More specifically, the clan has a responsibility to make sure the families kept the land that was allotted to them. It was an inalienable right. In fact, you think about this, if, you, if you're familiar with the story, it's one of the reasons uh, that Naboth responds to King Ahab the way he did. If you remember the story in 1 Kings 21, King Ahab, he takes a look at Naboth's land. He likes it. It looks really nice. He wants to make a trade with him. And Naboth says something along the lines of, the Lord forbid I ever give up my father's inheritance. He means quite literally the Lord has forbade it. He should not give up his land. So that's the second lead. The first is Israel's system of kinship and then Israel's system of land ownership. The third leg is the fact that it's God's land, that this is God's land. The land is God's. Now, Israel's well aware of this. We know this. This forms a major portion or part of their whole theology. The land is ultimately God's. It's stated in verse 23 of our chapter. It says, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. So Moses declares this truth long before they ever arrived in the promised land. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 17, he says, You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established." The promised land was under divine ownership and it was a divine gift. We're going to see that that they are going to be sojourners in the Lord's land. Yes, it's theirs. Yes, they have an inalienable right for it. It's a divine gift, but the land always and ultimately belongs to the Lord and it has to be used according to his precepts. The fourth and final leg, not only is the land God's, but also the people are God's. The people belong to God. They are God's people. The Israelites, are, they are guests and residents as I just mentioned. They've been brought in by the pure kindness and benevolence of the Lord to occupy the Lord's land. In fact, in verse 42 of chapter 25, it states, An Israelite is not to be sold into slavery. Why? Because they already belong to the Lord. They are His. So those are the the four legs of the table that we'll need to keep in our mind over the next month or so. One final comment before we jump into our text. I want us to understand that the Lord's dealings with Israel, as we've seen often time and again, as a whole, the Lord's dealings with Israel should be understood uh, paradigmatically. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, as the Lord has dealt with Israel... 
we see in some aspect it was to model the same way God, what, and what God desires for all of humanity. Okay? So, so Israel, again, it's a microcosm for humanity. These principles for God's dealing with his people are, are God's dealing with all people at every time and culture. And so though we do not actually practice a Sabbath year, nor the year of Jubilee, we have something here that does speak to exactly where we are in our culture. I think most of us know that, but I want us to remind us at the outset. All right, that's a long enough introduction. You ready for the rest? All right, good. So we got the legs. Let's put on the tabletop. The tabletop, quite simply, again, is verses 1 through 22, is about liberty and return. Liberty and return. It starts with the sabbatical year as it's listed in verses 1 through 7. Let's read those together in Leviticus chapter 25, 1 through 7, as soon as I swallow this cough drop. You ever get that point where the cough drop's like so small, you're like you're afraid it's going to come shooting out your mouth? No? Just me. All right. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired man, and the stranger who dwells with you. For your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for the Lord. What an interesting text this is. This, this actually is, is really just an expansion of what's already been declared about the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 23 in verses 10 and 11. It, I think it's on the screen if your eyes are there. It says, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie follow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the fields may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard, and your olive grove. So what we see in Exodus is, is not necessarily brought out very clearly in our text in Leviticus. Did you notice that? And that is, is that there's a central focus here in the Sabbath year on the poor in the community. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 18, if you did the reading this week, it brings this out very explicitly. I'll just read the first four verses of that in Deuteronomy chapter 15. It says this, At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother, except when there may be no poor among you. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, as an inheritance. It, all, it goes all the way through verse 18, talking about this sabbatical year. But the focus very specifically is on the help it offers the poor. But what was its purpose? So, so obviously we know a little bit about the purpose of the sabbatical year, but let's dive a little bit down deeper here and look at some of the purposes of this sabbatical year. Uh, rest certainly has to be the first purpose that just comes to our mind, right? Rest is certainly one of its 
purposes. The land would rest. The people would rest. Even hired workers and sojourners were not to perform their normal agricultural work. The animals were given rest. And unavoidably, there's a principle that we really see here clearly in the scriptures that often we overlook, and that is the Lord does care for his creation. From the smallest to the greatest, these things are not unimportant to him. And, And therefore, nor should they be unimportant to his people. I want you to know this, because I feel like sometimes we can go so heavily to the, the conservative side that any kind of care for the earth seems as just, it's just a tree hugger sort of liberal sort of mentality. The reality is, according to the Bible, we as God's people are to care about creation. We are to care about those things that he's created. We can't help but realize that those who show no concern whatsoever for the environment seem to disregard the principle that God does care for his creation. Now, does this mean we need to uh, ensue panic every time it gets a little warmer? Absolutely not. But, guys, let's not go the other way, right? The Lord cares for his creation. Therefore, we, as the stewards over creation that he's put in the garden, ought to care as well. We already spoke on this. Uh, there's also a purpose of relief. Not just a purpose of rest for the land, but a purpose of relief. Relief of the poor is obvious. So, rest and also relief. The Sabbath year provided food for the poor. This practice also provided debt relief, but there's, there's finally another one that's not mentioned specifically in Exodus, Leviticus, or Deuteronomy that we have to touch on. And that is, it was not only a purpose of rest and relief, but the Sabbath was also a sign of the covenant, meaning remembrance was a purpose. Rest, relief, and remembrance. The weekly Sabbath, certainly, but also the sabbatical year was a sign of the covenant for the people of Israel. And they were to practice it as such. We see that in Exodus 31. It was to be a reminder of the covenant God had made with Israel on Mount Sinai. So obeying its regulations was not an option. It was supposed to set Israel apart and to be an expression of their covenant obedience. Okay, so so it's real easy just to read through all of those things and and understand them. But it's a whole lot harder to say, okay, now how does this apply to, to our life? What does it look like for us today? And if we were to attempt to apply each of these, let's just do it, right? For instance, the purposes of the sabbatical year. If they start with the rest, let's apply it. Well, especially in our culture, I do not believe we are a people that is easily given to rest. I think that partly uh, we struggle with this for the same reason it would have been difficult for an Israelite. It's because of a lack of trust. It's hard for us to set aside the things that we are compelled to do, that we know have to get done to rest in the Lord. And and there's another reality that's true in our culture, and that is there's simply too much to do. Don't you feel that? That there's no way we can possibly do all that could be done. Or sometimes we feel must be done in order for us to get on in life. There's just too much. Sacrifices have to be made. Decisions have to be made. It's endless how much work is available to us. 
the technological advances that were promised to alleviate our workload, they've actually done quite the opposite. They have opened up every possible moment of our lives as an opportunity to do more, create more, accomplish more, and the temptation is great for us to give ourselves to it fully. Listen, there's a principle here that applies to all of us. While we do not practice a sabbatical year, we are to regularly rest in the Lord. I mean, literally. We are to cease from our busyness and daily activities to unplug and give ourselves fully to God. Listen, that's that's part of what we do every Lord's Day when we meet. We rest in the Lord. So are you resting? Well, what about relief for the poor? We saw rest was a purpose. Relief was also a purpose. Uh, The reality is we have a huge responsibility for primarily the family of Christ. But I simply want to put forth here as we think about how we might apply this, that we are to be a generous people. Just think about this. Think about what the sabbatical year asked of those who poured out into the land. Right? We, we've, got, we've got so many homesteaders in our church right now. It seems to be just huge. Right? Everyone is into farming, agricultural, uh, creating their own food resources. It's great. But just picture this. They worked it six years to make it a productive place that would bring forth all their family needs and then some. So that they might even make a profit. They want it to feed and, and take care of their family. Then in the seventh year, they're commanded... To sit back and just watch others take from it. Like look, the land is right there in front of them, right? They they don't go on vacation. They're there when others go through and take from the fields that they've worked in for six years. That's profit that's being taken from them. And I just want to ask this, as it just pondered my heart this week, how does that speak to the way that you and I think about our profits? How does that speak to the way that we accumulate, build, and work in order to earn? Now, I'm not answering that question. I'm just presenting it because I think it's something we need to think about. Remember what what undergirded the whole thing. God owns it. All. Make the transition here. The Israelite worked hard by the sweat of his brow to put food on the table, but the land didn't grow anything without God allowing it to. There wasn't enough sweat on his brow to produce a single grain of wheat if the Lord did not ultimately give it. So there's relief, rest, relief. But let's think about remembrance. How does that apply to us? You know, how we respond to these first two really depends on how we respond to the last. How we think about the busyness of our lives, how we rest, how we think about our generosity, how we respond to those in need, it ultimately depends on our remembrance. Whether we're remembering the covenant we're a part of or all God has done in order to bring us in right relationship with himself through his son, it all depends on our thoughts of remembrance. Which is why we celebrate an ordinance of remembrance often to bring those things to mind. So that's the year of the Sabbath, their sabbatical year. I want to read next about the year of Jubilee. Uh, these two are interrelated, as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 15. 
Um, uh, in verses eight, 18, or 8 through 12, I'm going to skip around a bit here. What I, what I want to do is I really want to start with verses 13 through 17. I want us to think about the financial implications of the year of Jubilee, uh, the exhortation and the promise we'll find in verses 18 through 22. And then I want us to come back at the end to the year of Jubilee and really think about what it's about. And so I want us to start in verse 13 and read verses 13 through 17 and the financial implications of the year of Jubilee. It says this, In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price, and according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the numbers of the years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. The financial implications are addressed here, and there are financial implications. If you are hiring your worker not to work, and yet he's hanging around, guess what he's still got to do? He's got to eat. So, so still, you still have to let your land go follow. But if you're going to help a brother out and purchase their land for them, really all you're doing in that time is, is what? You're, you're renting it. You're going to rent the crops. So the question is, do I pay for 50 years when there's only a few years left? And the answer is obviously No. All of that is calculated according to the jubilee. How long until the next jubilee? That's what these verses are addressing. And really it comes down to this. The principle here is just do what's right. Don't try to sell your land for more than it's worth. And also don't try and pay less than what is actually proper. Do what is right. That's what we see in verse 17. Therefore you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 15 verse 9 actually puts it like this. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. See, the point is, the temptation is going to be to try and get one over. Right? I, I'm going to do what is in my best interest. And the Lord simply says, No, do what is fair for your brother. Those are the financial Implications, And then this section leads to a section with an exhortation and a promise. Exhortation and a promise. This is going to be in verses 18 through 22. It begins in verse 18. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them. And you will dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. This is just astounding to me. It, it starts then with a, with a so you shall, but really this is, this is really an if-then statement. If you observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform, then you will dwell in the land in safety. And then the Lord offers this promise. I want to read verse 19 again because I love this. He says, then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. I'm going to, I'm going to take uh, just a moment to promote uh, Fisherman's Friend Cough Drops. 
because there's no way I can do this smooth. You know, this is just, all right, now it's done. But if you don't have these, they're at CVS, and I mean, they're just straight menthol, but they're really, really good for you. Um, I don't think good for you, good for not coughing. Okay, an exhortation and a prayer. I, I don't want you to miss what, what just took place in verse 19, because here's what we do. We often think that, that we have to make this huge step of faith in order to be in obedience to the Lord. But look what the Lord does here. Did you see this? He says, I'm going to give you so much in the sixth year that you're not even going to have to worry about it. This, this isn't, I'm just hoping the Lord provides the next year. He's saying, before you even leave in the sixth year, you're going to have enough until the ninth year. That's a generous promise. He isn't saying, listen, if you just take a step off the ledge, just close your eyes and and take the plunge, then I'm going to pour out blessing for you. He says, I'm already going to give it to you. It will be in your storehouses. Now, this is what you don't do. What I don't want you to do, the Lord says, is do exactly what you did in the wilderness. Meaning, you collect two days worth on the sixth day, And then when the man is still sitting on the ground on the seventh day, you go out and collect that too. Because that's going to be the temptation. It's not the temptation that I haven't provided and you are waiting, hoping I'm going to provide. The temptation is your greedy hearts are going to want more. Let's apply this right here and now, right? Just ask yourself this question. Do we trust the Lord? I'm not asking that in judgment. I'm just saying, do we? Friends, church family, has he not provided abundantly? And listen, here's our temptation. We're tended to just agree with that because we live in the West. Sitting in a still very fluent nation, enjoying insane amounts of comfort and prosperity, even yes now. But if we were someplace else, would we still not have to say yes to that question simply because we have all things in Christ? I mean, would we not say... That he has provided enough in the sixth year in Christ to last us for all of eternity? What can we possibly give that would use up what we have in Christ? Nothing. Now let's look at the year of Jubilee itself. If the sabbatical year is a miniature Jubilee, the Jubilee is like the granddaddy sabbatical year. It's the big dog sabbatical year, as we say in the page house, where the horn is blowing and Everyone goes free. Freedom and return are really the two big ideas of this passage. Let's read it starting in verse 8. It says, And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to its, all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession. And each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sorrow or you shall neither sow nor reap what grows on its own accord. Nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. That's it. Seven times seven, the end of the 49th year, in the seventh month, 
On the 10th day, the trumpet is going to do what it always does and blow on the Day of Atonement. But a proclamation goes out. Set the captives free. Debts removed. Prison doors open. Go home. Return home. That's the picture. And don't miss, by the way, the connection with the Day of Atonement. Year after year, the Day of Atonement was practiced where the the sins of the people would be placed on the head of the goat. And the goat killed in the place of the people. The blood taken to sprinkle clean the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary. And then the scapegoat ritual taking the sins outside of the camp far away. It's a picture of freedom and sin. Cleansed for a moment, even if only for a brief moment. Then... In its 50th year, to accompany it was this very practical, immediate experience of that freedom. Freedom from one's debts, from from one's servitude, from consequences of past generations. It's about freedom in the form of a fresh start. So in the year of Jubilee, Israelites who have fallen on hard times would be released of all their debts. Their property, which was their inheritance in the land, would be restored to them and they would be Freed from their servitude. Catch this. Whether to an Israelite or non-Israelite, whoever they were in service to, they would be released. If it was to a non-Israelite, it would be the clan's responsibility to let that Israelite know, you are done. They're going home. The understanding of the liberty that was pronounced can't be separated, though, from the return that was to take place. Everyone was returned to their own land, surrounded by their own clan within their own tribe. It says in verse 10, Each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. Again, in verse 13, put your eyes there. Each of you shall return to his possession. So, after years of working someone else's land, tending someone else's flock, the Israelite was released to go back to their own family land, their own family See, often the loss of land would would mean in itself the separation of a family. Ponder it. Fifty years. Can you imagine the joy that would be experienced? Jubilee is is a fitting word. Jubilation or exaltation, it's a celebration, rightly so. After the experience of being separated from one's family, the loss of one's land... Living in servitude and the overwhelming debt, finally, there was freedom. But 50 years, I mean, look, this debt and the servitude could, could have started in the 10th year. Right? Your family could look a lot different by the next time you see them. This isn't a couple of years. It might be, depending on when it starts, but, but usually it would be a much longer period of time. You could be meeting family members that you've never met before. You'll be hearing that you'll never see some family members again. So celebration, yeah. Jubilation, certainly. Exaltation, yes. But also heartbreak. Sadness. Loss. And ultimately, while we see the sovereignty of God at work here and the call to trust in God's providential provision... Excuse me. We also see the promise of God here. See, the year of Jubilee was both provision and promise. Obviously, we've looked at the provision. We've seen very clearly that the provision safeguarding against greed and exploitation. It provided, again, a fresh start for families that became ensnared by poverty. 
It provided a stabilizing factor for the society as a whole. It was a reminder that it was God's land, yes, God's people, yes. The Jubilee year was certainly precious provision, but it was also a promise. It was a promise of a much greater liberty in return. See, I I want us to think about it in a few steps here. We have to keep every single story in Scripture, again, within the context of the whole. Remind yourself of the beginning. Human beings were created with liberty. We were created with that, but we lost it. The reality is, ever since the fall, humanity has been enslaved to sin. We sold our birthright. We have been ensnared and willingly rebel against our benevolent creator. We are not only created with liberty and lost it, but we were also created to dwell with God in his place. And we have been exiled. We are no longer a people who dwell in the presence of God, walking among us as Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. See, that context, it's got to be considered as we look at this. We have to understand, ultimately, in the big picture, this has to point to something greater than itself. Every seven years, a sabbatical year, was never enough to actually alleviate the poverty. I mean, as great as it was, in another 50 years, there would be another need for a jubilee year. It was never going to eradicate the sin that would bring about the results and consequences of human actions. Hear that. That means a greater liberty and return would be necessary. That's exactly why in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2, uh, it proclaims this better jubilee. This greater liberty and return. When he says this, he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. To preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. And of course you know where we're going right? If you're familiar with the word. We know that that Christ took these very words on his lips. In Luke chapter 4 verses 16 through 21. Quoting Isaiah, he read it in the synagogue with all eyes upon him. And then in verse 21, it says, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, the jubilee was announced, but with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, a much greater and better jubilee has come. Christ himself. His life manifested that as he freed the demon-possessed from their possessors. As he healed the sick, as he ministered to the poor, he proved that. Remember these words from John chapter 8. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Christ has accomplished our liberty through his perfect life and substitutionary sacrificial death. So Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 14, speaking of those who were enslaved to sin, he says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That is freedom. Freedom from the law. Freedom from sin. And freedom in Christ. 
This is the true and better jubilee. Listen, we're not talking about a great restart. We're talking about endgame. This is not an opportunity for us just to get things right this time. This is a permanent, eternal jubilee brought about by the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid for each and every one of the sins of His people. There's a permanent liberty for those who've been made alive together with Him by faith and repentance. And so we do not need another jubilee. For Christ has secured our liberty forever. But get this. He's not only our jubilee, but He's our return. We no longer need to return to a land. But we're in Christ. He is our inheritance. Being in Him is being in right relationship with God. That's actually a jubilee worthy of the name. And and listen, all right, okay. I I know all this is true. I know it. But I struggle with this. Because I'll be honest, and I'm sure you feel this too. There are certainly times, more often than not, that I don't feel free. I know this is true. But I have so many conversations with people who are in Christ, who love the Lord Jesus, and they don't feel free. So I thought to myself, well, how am I going to proclaim this? And I just don't feel it. Well, I proclaim it because I know it's true. But I also realize that the Jubilee has been announced. But friends, I'm not home yet. I haven't made it back. We haven't made it back. We are freed from sins. Praise God. Hallelujah. But we're also now being freed from the experience, the remnant of that dying sinful nature. We have returned in Christ. We are in Him and we stand on that truth. And and some days that's all we can do because the reality is that Jubilee has not yet been fully experienced by the people of God. It's true. We read the Word and we know it. And we've even experienced it in part of our lives. Let's not downplay the fact that many of us even in this room have experienced freedom from the power of guilt and sin. Amen. We recount together the testimony of that. And yet there's still the experience of being at the whim of our flesh. There's still the experience of just not feeling free. So what do we, what do, we do, church? Do we just deny that or just put that in a box somewhere in the, in the closet and pretend that we've, we've got the whole inheritance right now? That there's never a defiled thought that floats in my mind? That thoughts never actually become more than that as I entertain it longer than I should. Pretend that that's not the case. Pretend that I never get impatient or angry with my children. Pretend that this freedom that I know I have in Christ is my actual experience every moment of every day. No, we don't pretend. Instead, with each experience of failure, I recognize that it just teaches me to long for more and more of the full manifestation of that jubilee that will be ours when Christ returns. I long for it. I hate the thoughts. I hate the impatience. I hate how easily I can give in to my flesh. But church family, Christ is coming back. And I'm His. 
I will experience, church, we will experience the full freedom for which we were purchased by Him. And oh, how I long for that day. And oh, by the power of the Spirit, how I long for my life to reflect that day more and more as I grow into the image of the likeness. Would you stand as we close this morning in prayer? Father, you are indeed gracious. When we ponder the links to which you went to redeem for yourself a people in Christ, that you did not even spare your own son, we are reminded and greatly assured that there is nothing above Nothing below, in us, outside us, nothing, not even death itself, that can separate us from the love you have for us in Christ. Oh, Father, how we cling to that. We thank you for the freedom that we have experienced, and yet, oh Lord, help us to long for the fulfillment. Help us to long for the completion of that jubilee when Christ returns. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. As we come to the conclusion of our service, this is the time of our invitation. Uh, This is as much part of the service as any other. It's our call to respond to that which God has so faithfully given us through his word. And so we do this every week. We talk to those who know themselves to belong to Christ and those who don't know themselves to belong to Christ. So if you're in Christ this morning, uh, and, and maybe you're just like me, where, where you know that this is true, you just, you just don't feel free, right? The, the pangs and difficulties of this world, they weigh you down, and you share in that difficulty. I just want to remind you and encourage you that you do not do that alone. What a sweet gift the Lord has given us that we get to be in this community together. So if you're, just, if you're just here this morning and you're struggling even with that very thing, the, the difficulties of this world reminding us uh, constantly we have not uh, had the full manifestation of that jubilee, that we long for that together. If you're here this morning that's you, please take the, take the advantage and the gift of what the local church is and pour that out to a brother and sister. Ask for prayer. Ask them to walk through accountability with you and encourage you in ways that you are, are most needful of them. Whatever the Lord's speaking in your heart, I pray that you would respond. We would, we would hope even longer, even more, for that great jubilee when Christ returns. Are you living today as if that's the case? That you truly believe that jubilee is awaiting us? Your prayer is that you would. But maybe you're here this morning and you recognize something. You recognize you, you haven't experienced any jubilee at all. Because you, you still owe a debt. You were still enslaved. You were still exiled from fellowship with your creator. That you do not have in Christ jubilee, exaltation, peace, and hope. And even more importantly, salvation from your sins. The, the charge to you is very clear. Hear what Christ has accomplished. And fully and finally, he has redeemed his people through the sacrifice. See, the reality is you and I, we've earned our distance from the Lord. We've earned our, our slavery and our, our debt. It's a debt that's real that we owe in our sin because we have rejected our good and gracious God. 
in his design for our life. We instead live our own lives, our own way, wanting to be gods of our own life. And therefore, we are deserving of that just creator, God's wrath and punishment. Why? Because he is holy. The Bible says he cannot be in the presence of sin, nor can he look upon it with favor. And you, as his creation, were purposed to bring him honor and glory. Instead, you've rejected the creator for creation. And you seek to do that for yourself. So you have earned a debt. You've earned that separation. And if this were not a God of mercy, then his face would have been kept hidden from you. And guess what? He still would have been just. Still would have been righteous. But because he is a God of mercy and love and the fullness of all thereof, he sent forth his son, Jesus, fully God, fully man, to live a perfect life, to live a life that you and I should have lived, but we can't live. And he lived it for us. Therefore, he did not deserve or earn anything but the full inheritance of God's kingdom. And yet, he willingly set himself upon a cross and died by the hands of sinful men. But even more than that, on the cross, he took upon himself the full and final wrath of his father for sins that he never committed, but the sins that you and I committed. And he gives the gift for those who repent and trust in him of his righteousness, of his right standing, so that when the father now looks at those who are covered with the righteousness of Christ, he no longer sees our sin. He instead sees the sacrifice of his son. That's where the jubilee comes from. That's where our debts are no longer owed because Christ paid them. That's where we are no longer enslaved to the sin because Christ rose victorious over death. So we stand now in the presence of God for those of us who are in Christ, just awaiting for his return, proclaiming this message of hope. And so if you're here this morning and you know that you are still standing in your sins, still standing enslaved to this, this flesh, then the message is clear. Come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn away from them and trust in his finished and final work upon the cross for you. You can do that today. There's not some prayer that you need to repent or, or need, to, need to pray. You simply just cry out to the Lord and ask for his grace and mercy to confess your sins to him and to recognize he's your only hope, to call out for him as your Savior. And the Bible says he's faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins if we do that. But I do want to encourage you, if, if you've done that, if, if the Lord's just spoken to your heart this morning and he's stirred you to proclaim faith in him, please don't leave here without telling someone why. Because, my friend, even when the Lord is taking care of our, our biggest issue, our sin, we still struggle and wrestle with this flesh. And what you need more than anything else is a community of grace that will come along you and disciple you and love you and proclaim His excellencies and goodness in the midst of a world that is lost in dire need of His hope.